You're listening to podcast audio from Radiant Church, located in Bay City, Michigan. For more information on Radiant Church, you can check us out on www.radiantbc.com or follow us on social media at Radiant Bay City. Well, good morning, Radiant Church. How's everybody doing today? Hope you're doing well. Uh, my name is Adam Arnold, in case you are new with us. Um, I'm one of the leaders here. I, I primarily served as our main worship leader uh, for the past couple of years since really the start of Radiant Church until about last spring. And then um, we had our second child, Noel, Noli Poli, I like to call him. By the way, it's pronounced Noel, not Noel. Come on. Um, but anyway, so I've kind of taken a step back. I'm, an, I'm a full-time online teacher as well, and I'm pursuing a master's in education, so lots of things to stay busy. I do lead worship here once in a while, and I also fill in for Pastor Marco um, when he has a Sunday off. So um, it's a joy to be up here today, and I, whenever I teach my classes, I always like to start off with a bad joke that usually gets them uh, awake. So you ready for this? What do you call an obnoxious reindeer? Rude Dolph. There you go. And usually I get eye rolls, and that's so lame, but I don't care. They're awake, right? So it's an honor to be up here. I'm, I'm so glad to continue our series. It's called Born, and this is an Advent series. And Pastor Marco has been talking about kind of the Christmas story, the story of Mary. He unpacked the last couple of weeks. And through this, he was unpacking some lies that we tend to tell ourselves or believe culturally sometimes. But also, he also talked about a truth that we can pull out of the story of Mary and Joseph or the Christmas story in general. Week one, uh, he discussed the lie that sometimes we tell ourselves that God only uses perfect people. Thankfully, that is not true. If you look at Scripture from all the way from the beginning of Scripture to the end, you see God using imperfect people for his perfect will, right? That is the truth. And in the story of Mary and Joseph, God uses Mary for his glory. And she's able to be a part of one of the greatest things ever in world history, the incarnation of Christ. And so in week two the lie that Pastor Marco unpacked in the series is that we will never be happy unless we're in control of our lives. And we saw that in Mary's life, she actually lived opposite of that. She, she did not buy into those culture values, especially our culture values. We value autonomy. We, we value freedom. We value independence. But Mary surrendered herself to the Lord's will. She surrendered herself to God's plan and through that, we, we pulled out this truth that our lives actually belong to God and that we're actually created to worship him. And that freedom is actually found in surrender to the Lord. So I'm continuing in week three. We're going to be in Luke 1. So if you have your Bible, why don't you open that up? If you have a phone, dial in that Bible app. The verses will be on the screen behind me. If you're watching online, they will also be on your screen. I looked at the back door. Our camera used to be there. I'm like, if you're watching online, wait, it's there. <laughs> if you're watching online. Um, so pull that up, Luke chapter 1. I'm going to be mo mostly covering 
a man who we, many times he's called the spirit of Elijah, or in the book of Isaiah, he's called the voice of one in the desert. Make way for the Lord. He's the prophet that comes before Jesus to prepare a way for Jesus' entry into the world. I'm talking about John the Baptist. You know, I don't love Christmas songs, i got to be honest. As a, You're like, what? As a worship leader, you don't love Christmas songs? I think the reason why is because I'm insecure about my talents. I can't hit those high notes. Especially songs like Noel. It's like, Noel, 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 Noel. I'm like, come on, man. They just, they'd kill our voices in the Christmas season. But one song that I'll give some credit to, Joy to the World. Joy to the World is a, is a very famous Christmas song. The, there's a line in that song that I think encapsulates John the Baptist's story. It says this, let every heart prepare him let every heart prepare him. Let every heart prepare him room. That's exactly what John the Baptist's mission is, to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to dive into this morning. And as we look at this story of John the Baptist, I'm going to give you three points or three observations that I've pulled out of kind of reflecting on his story and life. So if you would, why don't you bow with me, we'll pray, and then we'll dive further into this message. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this season. Thank you for Jesus who came, as we sang earlier, the wonderful counselor, prince of peace, the mighty God, Emmanuel, God with us. We're so thankful for the grace that's been extended to us. Lord, help us to listen today. Help us to listen and align our hearts with what you're asking us to do. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, if I were to ask you a question, who is the wealthiest person on planet Earth today, what would you say? Who? <laughs> Thank you. He's setting me up. I like that. Uh, Bill Gates was the answer for a lot of years, wasn't it? I know when I was in high school, we did research reports, and Bill Gates, Bill Gates, Bill Gates, 120 billion some dollars. All right, that's a lot of Snapple. Um, but actually, a few years ago, someone else surpassed him. All right, go out to your porch today, stumble over a box, pick it up. What does it say? Amazon. Who's the CEO of Amazon? Jeff Bezos. Right, Jeff Bezos surpassed Sir Bill Gates. But Jeff Bezos is not the wealthiest person in the world today. You know who is? Elon Musk. Elon Musk. He is the founder of SpaceX. They're always launching rockets in the air. He's also the CEO of my brother's cool car company, Tesla. <laughs> no, he is the CEO of Tesla. He's worth $296 billion. $296 billion. The funny thing about him, too, is like his, his worth goes up and down, and it's like, oh, I lost a couple stock today, and I'm only worth $250 billion today. And then it skyrockets back up to $296 billion. So the question is, was, is Elon Musk 
the wealthiest person to ever live? Well, it's hard to tell because money changes over time. We have things like inflation. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to go there. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, we have the different values of currency that change over time. It's hard to tell in history, but one thing we can tell as historians, we can look at the evidence of people's wealth. There was a king in the 14th century in Western Africa, the kingdom of Mali, and his wealth is estimated to be close to 400 billion. It is said about this king that he was worth, or he owned approximately half of all the gold in the world at his, in his time. I'm talking about the kingdom of Mali. I'm talking about a king named Mansa Musa. Now, how do we know that Mansa Musa was really that wealthy? Well, we can read history and we can read stories about him, and it gives us indicators as to how wealthy and important he was. So there's this story about Mansa Musa that in the 14th century, being a Muslim king, he decided to make a hajj or a pilgrimage from Western Africa all the way over to Mecca in the Arabian Peninsula. Now that is a 4,000 mile journey. He's going to do it by walking and on camelback. With him, he's going to take a 60,000 man caravan. That's a huge entourage. 50 cent ain't got nothing on him. So he travels, and as he's on his way, it's a long journey. He's got to cross the Sahara Desert. He gets to Cairo, Egypt. He decides to take a little rest. He stays there for about a month. And in that month's time, his men, the 60,000 caravan, spend so much money and infuse so much gold into Cairo that it literally wrecks the economy for 10 years because it devalues the currency that they're using. All the precious gems and metals and all the things that they use for money just go That's how wealthy he was. Gold was nothing to Mansa Musa. There are stories of him trading gold for common table salt because they had so much gold in Mali at the time. Now, what's my point? My point is this, that even the wealthiest king in all of world history does not come close to the wealth of the king of kings. Check this out. Psalm 24 says this about Jesus. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That means all of the gold that Mansa Musa controlled, it wasn't really his. Everything in the world is his, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas, he established it on the waters. I love this. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Mansa Musa is a laughingstock to the king of kings. His glory is insurmountable. In fact, if you dive into Revelation and you, you do some little research, what is, hmm, I wonder what Jerusalem looks like. I wonder what the city of the king looks like of King Jesus. It says that the streets are made of gold. Now, in Bay City, we, we get this, right? Our streets are pretty bad. You can't even drink a cup of coffee. It's like... 
So we understand when, when it says the streets are made of gold in the city of Jesus, he's got more wealth than we can even understand. So when we think of a man like Mansa Musa, what one would expect is that he would carry a certain type of, I'm going to call this regal bearing. Now, I had to look this up. The word regal actually means of magnificent, of importance. When we use the term regal, we often refer to like a king or a queen. We say that they have regal bearing. Okay, if the Queen of England walked in, we would know it, wouldn't we? There'd be an entire entourage. They'd probably rope off the center aisle. We would understand clearly the regal bearing that the queen would have. So when we get ourselves ready for the coming of Jesus, wouldn't one expect that he would carry the same type of regal bearing as he enters the world? After all, he's the wealthiest, most prestigious, most famous, most written about figure in all of history. And that's a fact. So, enter John the Baptist. He is the herald. He is the messenger sent ahead of Jesus to proclaim the way, to make way for the king. He doesn't come with a 60,000-man caravan. He doesn't come with gold. He doesn't come with fine linen. He comes wearing sackcloth, basically animal fur, he comes by eating locusts and honey. He lives out in the desert. Very odd. This is what's said about John the Baptist in Luke 1.76. You can, you can look there if you have your Bible open. This is Zechariah, his father. And he says this about his son, John. And you, my child, will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him. That is his mission in life. He is born to make a way for the king of kings to come into the world. So what we see is we, we begin to look at the life of John the Baptist, the kind of message he brings as he prepares to usher in Jesus in the flesh into our world. And when we, when we think about that, we it's tempting for us to think much like the Israelites of the day, that Jesus would come, and he would come in splendor and power and do what? Send the Romans on their way. But that's not what happens. That's not what happens. Let's look at Luke 3, 3 through 6. This is what John the Baptist starts to do. This is the message that he preaches as he prepares the way for Jesus. Verse 3, he went into the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked ways shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth, and all of humanity will see God's salvation. So here you have a, a king like Mansa Musa who carries this regal bearing, and then you have Jesus who carries a message of repentance. And when I, when I look at this, and I look at 
these stories side by side, the wealthiest king in history versus Jesus, I make this observation that the regal bearing of a worldly king is riches, while the regal bearing of the king of kings is repentance. It's repentance. And again, like so often happens with Jesus, we're quite surprised, aren't we? We, we have to wonder, we have to lean in and say, what does this mean, repentance? What are you talking about? So it, it leads us to ask this question then, as we prepare for the Advent season, how are we making a way for the King of Kings in our own lives? Because it's so much safer and, and it's so much easier to view the king as one would view a king like Mansa Musa. Wow, magnificent, awesome. And I'm not saying that those things are bad, right? We worship Jesus. We exalt his name above all names. But the thing is, is sometimes we like to worship him at a distance, but take no steps towards a changed heart. And this is tough. I'm a worship leader. I, I see it all the time. After all, isn't that what we do? We glorify the King of Kings. We magnify the King of Kings. But John the Baptist, his message is, if you want to make a way for the King to come into your heart, it starts with repentance. It starts with repentance. Now, the funny thing about us as humans is we always like to pretend that we're okay, right? Uh, have you ever met somebody, maybe it's someone in your family, maybe it's you, that you get hurt and you're like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'll just shake it off, you know? My, uh, it always does this, the cold weather, you know, it, all, it, all, it always does this, you know? Or, ah, it's just a little blood, it'll dry up, I don't need stitches. I did that one time, I was cutting peppers, I know you're all going to wince right now, but I was cutting peppers, you know, in a hurry, in a hurry, kind of using a doll knife. And all of a sudden, I felt something strange. I looked down, and there's blood all over the cutting board. And I had, like, literally chopped off the end of my thumb, like the corner. And I was like, oh, I'm okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm okay, honey. I just have to sit down for a second. Uh, I just, uh, just give me a second. Um, give, me, give me a second. I wasn't okay. I needed stitches. In fact, I still have a scar there where that happened. Because we're so uncomfortable with the reality of things like that, aren't we? We're uncomfortable with reality. We're uncomfortable that things need to change. We're uncomfortable with things that we need help. And spiritually, we tend to do this a lot. We tend to say things like, my life is okay. And as we dive further into this Advent season, one of the lies that I think that we believe is this. My life is fine just the way it is. My life is fine just the way it is. And then I think that a, a, a better truth is this, that, that we're that the scriptures lead us in is that actually our lives are messed up, they're imperfect, and we need to get rid of sin in our life to make room for Jesus. What does scripture say? 
There is no one who is righteous. Not even one. All of our righteous works are like filthy rags to him who lives and reigns forever. You're not okay. Your life is not perfect. You need a Savior. Now here, I love worship culture. We have an amazing worship culture here at Radiant. Man, we have worship and prayer nights. We have uh, Sunday morning singing, and it, it's amazing. I love it. I've been a part of it. I'm a part of it often. But I think sometimes, and I'm convicted of this, is that we get, we, we get in danger of just singing about Jesus, lifting our voices, welcoming him into our hearts, but we end up approaching him like a pagan king at times. Now, hear me out. The Psalms encourage us to lift our hands, raise our voices. It encourages outwardly expression of worship. I'm not saying that's wrong. I do it all the time. We did it this morning. But what I'm saying is that to worship Jesus in your heart means to start with repentance first. Do that first before you do the outwardly. That's what he's saying. That's what John the Baptist is saying. Let's look again at Luke 3, 3 through 6. He went into the country around Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance. Notice how he doesn't say, uh, you know, let's just go to the temple and start singing and yelling and acting all crazy. He's, what he says first is repentance. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain made low, the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough way smooth, and all of humanity will see God's salvation. Now, in ancient times, many of the empires and kings would improve the roads as a way to access distant parts of the empire. In world history that I teach, we look at different empires from Egypt to Mesopotamia to Babylonia and so on. And we always ask the question, what is similar between the empires and the way that the kings act? One of the things that's always similar is the improvement of roads. Why? Because the kings are making way, making a way, making the path straight to access the different parts of the empire. And I think that's why this language is used when we look at these verses in regards to John the Baptist. The language of making paths straight, preparing a way. Preparing a way for what or for whom? Jesus. Jesus himself uses this language. Matthew 7, 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the what? The road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life. Only few find it. John the Baptist's mission is to make the path straight, make the road ready to prepare our hearts for him. Was it a physical road? And what kinds of preparations needed to be made? 
When I look at the language of the roads and of the pathways, it causes me to make this second observation, that the pathway is our hearts, and to make it ready is to repent. The pathway is our hearts, and to make it ready is to repent. So in Christmas season, we often make ready for the holidays, don't we? We decorate our homes, we set up Christmas trees, we bake cookies, we eat too much, we do all kinds of things for the holidays. But when is the last time we truly stopped and asked the question, what does it look like to make room for the king in this season? What does it really look like when we sing that line, let every heart prepare him room? So let's unpack what repentance means. I have this amazing Bible at home. It was gifted to me by someone. Uh, it's a Concordia self-study Bible. It has great commentary on every single verse of the Bible. This is what it says. Um, this is the commentary on Luke 3, verse 3. And I love this because it gives us a clear definition of repentance. It says this, and I quote, John's baptism represented a change of heart, which includes sorrow for sin and a determination to lead a holy life. John's baptism represented a change of heart, which includes sorrow for sin and a determination to lead a holy life. So what does that mean to us? Maybe you're here this morning and you feel the tug of the Holy Spirit at your heart. Maybe he's revealing some things to you that, that need to change, that, that you need to feel a sorrow about or you need to turn and be determined to live a more holy life in that direction. Or maybe you're here and you're thinking, I'm a pretty good person. I can't really think of anything that needs to change. I think I've got it all figured out. I think that this is a, a pretty good message for some, but being that I'm a Christian and I've been a Christian my whole life, I think I've got this figured out. But I wonder that why are you so confident that things are good and that Jesus would actually be impressed if he came over to your house to meet you? Don't fool yourself with self-righteousness. Don't fool yourself with self-righteousness. We're going to see that even some of the people in John the Baptist day had some of those same thoughts. The, some of the people that met Jesus and talked with Jesus had some of the same thoughts. Uh, look at, let's look at Luke 18, 9 through 14. These are the words of Jesus. To some who were confident of their own self-righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, these robbers and evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. 
he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, our own self-sufficiency and arrogance can stand in the way of the king who wants to make his way into your heart. It's like this. It's, it's like looking out your front window and you see Jesus. He's come over for your Christmas ham. He's walking up your sidewalk and he's tripping over the snow that you didn't shovel. How dare you? And you're looking out the window you're saying, Jesus, hey, buddy, welcome. Come on in. We've got Christmas ham and mashed potatoes and mac and cheese and cheesecake and presents and family. We've got a fireplace. Come on in, Jesus. But the door is deadlocked. It's dead bolted. And you refuse to open it. Doesn't that seem silly? That's what it's like when we're where we say, welcome, Jesus, come on into my heart. I worship you. I love you. I love you. And then you leave the door deadbolted. Listen, I'm, I'm not condemning you. Oftentimes when I preach, I'm like talking to myself. Because as humans, we don't like to have a change of heart. We don't like to be told we're wrong. We don't like to admit we're wrong. Anybody married in here? <laughs> Sorry, I had to throw that in there. No, but it's so true, right? We don't like to, to feel convicted. We don't, we don't like it. It's uncomfortable. But nonetheless, when we hear stuff like this, we ask ourselves, like the people did, what then shall we do? John 3, 7 through 14. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warn you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, don't start making excuses that I'm justified. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down. And thrown into the fire. Whew. The people were taken aback. They said, well, what should we do? John answered, and I love this. It's so simple and practical. It, it, it's not run down to the church and kick the doors open and make sure you be the loudest one singing. He says that anyone who has two shirts, share it with another one. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to. Then some soldiers asked, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. When I look at this passage and I try to unpack what he's talking about when he's saying repent for the kingdom of God is near, it leads me to our third observation, that the straightening, 
the path of your heart is changing the path of your heart or repentance. Straightening the path of your heart is actually changing the path of your heart or repentance. So in other words, if, if, if every heart were to say, let us prepare him room, let us prepare him room in this season, then we would take an honest look at the integrity in our heart because we're the only ones that really know what's going on inside. And I feel like there's somebody here today that maybe this is pressing hard on your chest and you know that things need to change. You know that you need to stop hating that person. You know that you need to stop being dishonest on your taxes. You, you know that you need to stop mistreating family members. You know that you, you felt pressed to, to maybe to give generously and you've ignored it. Whatever it may be in your life, whatever is going on in your heart, to make room for the king means to repent, to go the other way. Go the other way. You need to change. Now, this uh, can sometimes be a lot easier to say than done, right? Many times we ask ourselves, still, what shall we do? Anybody ever put together or tried to put together a, a piece of Ikea furniture? Notice how I said, or tried to put it together. Because it can be frustrating. You open that little booklet, it's like in a different language. It's like, I'm like, okay, where do we go from here? Oh, there's a picture. Uh, okay, do I have a screwdriver or... I'm like, I need this spelled out. I need a video tutorial on how to do this. And I think sometimes we treat repentance like that. We're like, man, if I just had, you know, if I just had a dream and like in my dream, like Jesus walked into my room and said, you know, Adam, you lie a lot. You should quit lying. Your, your lying stinks. That's not the way it works though, right? You feel the tug of the Holy Spirit. And by faith, you respond to that. You respond. You know, repentance is a lot like running. I've said this before up here. You can wish for it all you want. You can say, I love running. You can buy the gear. You can make a plan. But unless you start running, you're not a runner. Don't lie to yourself. You're not a runner. You're a runner if you run. And you run on a consistent basis. That's repentance. If you're going to truly repent, you're going to truly change. Now, aren't you thankful that the King of Kings, one of his titles, we sang about this this morning, is Wonderful Counselor. And I don't want you to walk out of here today and be all beat up and say, you know, I, my life stinks and Jesus hates me, and why even try? That's not the message of the Christmas season. The message of the Christmas season is God's 
grace. It is that he is called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting God, Prince of Peace. And man, when you, when you begin to repent and turn your life and change your heart and, and get rid of the sin that's been inhibiting Jesus in your life for years, man, he stands there with arms open wide. Like the story of the prodigal son, he stands like the father on the road calling his, calling his son back. So, here's my challenge. Ask the Holy Spirit today to reveal instructions. It reveal the areas that we need to repent of. And then it's simple. Turn from it and go the other way. It's simple. So in this Advent season, let's not treat Jesus like just another worldly pagan king. One simply to be admired and applauded for, to made, made to walk in our worldly regalty, because it's so easy to just stand at a distance, admire him, tell him that we love him. But you know as well as I do that our king is so much more personal than that. He's coming after your heart. He's coming after your heart. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace. Lord, thank you that you tell us the truth about repentance because you love us. It's not because you want to beat up on people and that you hate us. It's because you love us and you want us to walk in the ways of the Father. And so, Lord, Holy Spirit, as, as we lean farther into this Advent season as we prepare our hearts to make him room. Would you help us to be honest with ourselves and to re repent of some things that maybe we need to. We admit it's not easy, but Lord, give us courage. Help us to have faith to follow you. It's in his name. Amen. Well.